Tsar Nicholas II and his wife Alexandra had four daughters, one after another, Olga, Tatiana, Maria, Anastasia. Then finally, their beloved boy, Alexei. In historical memory, the girls tend to blur together. In photographs, they are a smiling cluster of white dresses. Alexei is more recognizable, if only because he is the sole boy in these black and white images. He is dressed, inevitably, in a sailor suit, and his thin face is serious. We cannot help but think of his suffering from hemophilia, the weeks he spent lying in bed in agonizing pain, the time he nearly died from a nosebleed. But Alexei was more than a disease. He was a real person, a brat of a baby brother who teased his sisters and played pranks on the ladies-in-waiting. All of the Romanov children were real people. Olga was introverted and sensitive and always falling in love with soldiers. Tatiana bossed her sisters around so much they called her the governess. Maria ignored the rules of rank and precedence and befriended the servants. Anastasia was a born mimic who impersonated the voices and mannerisms of the imperial ministers. They were all real people with dreams and goals and annoying habits that got on the nerves of their siblings. With very little effort, we can discover their individuality through their diaries and the accounts of family members and friends. That is what separates the royal children from the other victims of the Russian Revolution. Millions of Russians died in the same carnage that killed the Romanovs. Most of these victims vanished from history. We don't know their names or have their photographs or know their favorite perfume. Olga preferred the scent of roses. Tatiana, jasmine. Joseph Stalin is supposed to have said, A single death is a tragedy. A million deaths is a statistic. The deaths of the Romanov children are tragedies. Let us remember that so were all of the other deaths, the thousands upon thousands of deaths of this terrible time. This is the year that was, 1919. Welcome. My name is Elizabeth Lunda. I'm your host. This is the podcast where we look at history one year at a time, and we are up to our eyebrows in the Russian Revolution and unrest in Eastern Europe. If you haven't listened to the previous episode, I really, really recommend you go do so because I am going to start right where we left off. And where we left off was in the summer of 1918, as the Czechoslovak Legion seized the entire Trans-Siberian Railway. In early July, they began moving north from Chelyabinsk, the site of their skirmish with a group of Hungarian POWs, and toward Yekaterinburg. Critically for our story and for the future of Russia, the Legion was no longer alone. They had gained some highly questionable allies known as the Whites. Let's get started by introducing these new players in the Russian game, or maybe I should say some old players under a new name. The Whites were a loose coalition of Democrats, Socialists, and Monarchists who had very little in common except for their hatred of the Bolsheviks. The White Army was primarily composed of former Tsarist officers, officers who had fled the army when the Soviets took over. They didn't all seek the reestablishment of the monarchy, but like it or not, they were associated with the old regime. 
The Whites were determined to overthrow the Bolsheviks, who were also known as the Reds. It was thoughtful of the Russians, don't you think, to color code their civil war? Since they seized control of the government in October 1917, the Reds had established a firm grip on Petrograd and Moscow and most of the other industrial cities. However, they were struggling to extend their authority elsewhere. The Whites were eager to exploit the weakness of the Reds and push them out of Russia. In fact, the Whites were only one of the groups opposing the Reds. They faced a whole crayon box of enemies, including the Greens and the Blacks and some other groups that avoided the whole color thing just to make life difficult. To keep us all from hopeless confusion, I'm just going to focus on the Whites. The Whites attacked the Reds from three directions, and it really helps to look at a map at this point. You can find one on the website, www.theyearthatwaspodcast.com. One army struck from the south via Ukraine. Another hit from the north via Archangel, a port that opens on the Barents Sea and the Arctic Ocean. The third force attacked from the east, starting from Vladivostok and moving west. This white army was moving along the same path as the Czechoslovak Legion, but in the opposite direction. Originally, the Legion didn't want anything to do with the Whites. The goal of the Legion was still to get all of their troops to Vladivostok, sail all the way around the world, and join the fight on the Western Front. They were diverted from this task by the Allies, by the French, the British, and the Americans. Now, what were the Allies doing interfering in all of this? So let's talk for a minute about the Allied response to the Russian Revolution. When the Bolsheviks seized power, the Allies' immediate reaction was to be seriously annoyed. Russia was supposed to be holding down the central powers in the east. The Allies were also frustrated because they had made enormous loans to Russia, both in cash and in vast stores of military supplies. When the Allies tried to discuss the repayment of these loans with the Bolsheviks, Lenin and company just sneered. It was shocking to the Allies how hostile and uncooperative the Bolsheviks were. They had this alarming habit of talking about international revolution and how their purpose was to export communism to the world and overthrow the entire global capitalist system. This sort of language made Allied diplomats deeply uncomfortable. The Allies tried to keep their cool, but they were seriously freaking out. Marxists had been around for a couple of decades, but no one had taken them seriously. Sure, they influenced leftists in most Western countries, but the idea of them actually taking over an entire country was absurd until they did it. Their sudden triumph was both inexplicable and frightening, and politicians had to ask themselves if the Reds succeeded in Russia, could they also succeed in Britain, Germany, the United States? A wave of paranoia swept the globe. The Allies didn't really want to intervene in Russia, and in the summer of 1918, they didn't have the troops available to send in a large force, but they thought it behooved them to get some boots on the ground just in case the Red Menace really did start to spread. And then they remembered the Czechoslovak Legion. The Allies didn't need to send a large force to Russia. They already had a large force in Russia in the form of those plucky Czechoslovak legionnaires. 
that summer, the whole world was talking about the amazing Czechs and Slovaks and how they conquered Russian territory from the inside. The Czech independence movement had an admirably effective propaganda arm that spread the story of their triumph far and wide. The Czechoslovaks were painted as courageous lads battling in an enemy land for the freedom of their oppressed brethren. Everyone was impressed with them, including future Prime Minister Winston Churchill, who said, and you have to imagine this in the Churchill voice, the pages of history recall scarcely any parallel episode at once so romantic in character and so extensive in scale. So the Allies got in touch with the Legion with the following message. Number one, put the whole going to France via Vladivostok thing on hold until we get this Russia stuff sorted out. Number two, secure the territory you've won and start conquering more. Number three, get in touch with the whites and join forces with them against the Reds. Admittedly, the Allies didn't know much about the whites, but they were opposed to the Reds and the enemy of my enemy is my friend, right? Number four, keep an eye out for our troops because we are coming to help you. British, American, and other Allied soldiers are literally on their way as we speak. Don't lose hope. We've got your back. And finally, number five, if you get a chance to reopen the Eastern Front against Germany, please do so. Thanks. The last part was, honest to God, part of the instructions sent to the Legion. And it's absolutely absurd. The nearest German army was 1,000 miles away. By all accounts, Woodrow Wilson was a highly intelligent man, but he needed to learn how to read a map. The Legionnaires were disappointed they weren't going to continue to Vladivostok, but they were, above all else, good soldiers. So they followed the Allied instructions as best they could, allowing for geography. Soon they had established a partnership with the Whites and were together advancing north and west against the Red Army. Next in their path was Yekaterinburg. Now, Let's back up for a bit and talk about Yekaterinburg and explain why the Tsar and his family happened to be there. We last saw the Tsar living outside of Petrograd in a very comfortable castle playing dominoes with his family. They were under house arrest, but it wasn't too bad. There was some talk of sending them into exile in England, but those plans fell through. When the Bolsheviks seized power, the situation for the family became more precarious. The communists had no sympathy for the Romanovs and no pity. They saw the aristocracy as their implacable enemy. The question was, what to do with the Romanovs? Should they maybe put Nicholas on trial? While they argued over a solution, they decided it was dangerous to keep the Romanovs so close to Allied forces. Instead, the Bolsheviks would ship the family more than a thousand miles east into the heart of Russia to Yekaterinburg. The Bolsheviks chose Yekaterinburg because the local Soviet was known to be loyal to the Red Cause and ideologically pure. The guards there wouldn't start to feel sorry for their prisoners and let them escape. Besides, what was the point of escaping into the foothills of the Ural Mountains? No one could get to them there. The Romanovs were whisked away in total secrecy. Only a handful of officials knew exactly where they were. When they arrived in Yekaterinburg, the family was stripped of all but a few servants and a doctor for Alexei. They were kept in the ominously named House of Special Purpose. It had been surrounded by a 12-foot-tall security fence. This was not comfortable house arrest, and there were no more games of croquet. 
The family were allowed outside only for brief walks. The windows were painted over and the food was bad. Life in the house of special purpose was incredibly boring. The family played bridge and read the Bible. The daughters were desperate for something, anything to do, so they had the cook teach them how to make bread and help the maid darn their stockings. It was hot and it was stuffy. Alexei hurt his leg the first night in Yekaterinburg and was bedridden for several weeks. You might think that cuts would be the biggest danger to a hemophiliac, but in fact the greatest risk was from internal bleeding. The slightest injury, a rolled ankle, a wrenched knee, could cause bleeding into the joint. The joint would grow massively swollen and unbearably painful. Little could be done except comfort the boy as he writhed in pain. The daughters tried to help. They played games with Alexi in bed. They read to their mother, who suffered from sciatica and could barely walk herself. They played bridge with their father. They were good girls. Except they weren't girls, not really. They had come of age during the revolution. Olga was 22, Tatiana 21, Maria 19, and Anastasia 17. Maria had her birthday on June 26th, and an incident that day really brings home the truth that the Romanov daughters were real people, real young women. Maria was outgoing and friendly. She loved to talk to people, ask them about their families, learn about their lives. Under their first regime of house arrest back in the palace, Maria had befriended all of the guards and knew all about their wives and their children, their sweethearts, their brothers and sisters. With young soldiers, this friendliness easily turned into flirtation. At Yekaterinburg, Maria was her usual friendly self. At first, the guards treated her and her family with open hostility. They were rude and crude and followed the girls when they went to the bathroom. But over time, the guards, dedicated Bolsheviks to a man, began to soften toward the family, especially Maria and Anastasia. One of them, a man named Ivan Sorokodov, and I hope I'm not butchering that too badly, began paying particular attention to Maria. Everyone observed this budding little romance. There was no privacy at the House of Special Purpose. Alexandra was furious and reprimanded her daughter for flirting. Olga refused to talk to Maria. On June 26, the family celebrated Maria's birthday as best they could. Skorokodov suddenly arrived with a birthday cake. He had purchased it in town and smuggled it into the grounds against all protocols. The afternoon wore on, and then the senior Bolshevik in the region, the military commissioner of the Urals, no less, showed up for a surprise inspection. He caught Maria and the soldier alone together, apparently in a compromising position. Most likely they were doing no more than kissing, but the commissioner was furious. He dismissed Sorokodov and several other guards that had become too soft with the prisoners. The first time I read this story several years ago, I honestly found it embarrassing. I can understand why Alexandra and Olga were upset. What was Maria thinking? But I've thought about it since, and now it just breaks my heart. She was 19. He was probably only a few years older, if that. 19-year-olds are stupid. They flirt with inappropriate people, and if they get a chance, they kiss them. No, she shouldn't have been canoodling with a member of the Red Army, 
but there was no one else with whom to canoodle, and she was only human. They were all only human. And now the two lines of our story come together again. As the July heat bore down on Yekaterinburg, ominous rumblings could be heard in the distance. Nicholas, at least, would have recognized it as artillery fire. The Czechoslovak Legion and the White Army were nearing Yekaterinburg. The Legion was as professional and efficient as ever. They advanced steadily on the city and forced the Bolsheviks to retreat before them. It became clear to the senior leadership back in the capital that the city would fall. They could not allow the whites to rescue Nicholas. He would become a symbol, a rallying point, a source of strength for the enemy. And so the fate of Nicholas and his entire family was sealed. Orders went out from Lenin to kill them all. At 1.30 a.m. on the night of July 17th, the Romanovs were woken up and ordered down into the basement, supposedly for their own safety. They crowded into the room along with a dozen or so guards. There the commandant announced Nicholas's death sentence and shot the former czar in the chest at point-blank range. The guards opened fire and slaughtered the entire family and their four servants. The noise of screams and rifle fire must have been deafening in the small room. Stories that any of the children escaped death were always unbelievable and have been disproven by DNA testing. The heir to the throne, the fatally ill Alexei, was only 13. Curiously, among the guards who shot the royal family, five or six of them, accounts vary, were not Russian. They were Hungarian Bolsheviks. The Czechoslovak Legion and the White Army captured Yekaterinburg nine days later. They discovered the house of special purpose, now abandoned. Empty hangers hung in the closets, but Alexandra's Bible was found along with a copy of War and Peace. The basement seemed to have been hurriedly cleaned, but there were traces of blood on the baseboards. The walls were scarred with bullet holes. News had already gone out that the Tsar was dead. It was announced in Izvestia on July 19th that Nicholas had been shot by the local Soviet as a punishment for his, quote, innumerable bloody crimes. The newspaper reports claim that the Empress and her children were, quote, safe. Even the Bolsheviks hesitated to tell the world that they had murdered five women and a 13-year-old boy. It's hard, I think, not to be moved by the tragedy of the Romanovs. Nicholas was an objectively terrible ruler, but his death was horrific and his children and his servants were entirely innocent. But I also think it's important to place their deaths in context. That context is terror. At the same time the Bolsheviks slaughtered the Romanovs, they were beginning a planned, organized campaign to terrorize and slaughter hundreds of thousands of Russians. They called it the Red Terror. There was nothing secret about it. They even published a government declaration called About the Red Terror, as if it were some new agricultural policy. The head of the Cheka, the secret police, stated, We stand for organized terror. This should be frankly admitted. Terror is an absolute necessity during times of revolution. The Cheka arrested anyone for any reason or for no reason at all. Sometimes the Cheka would block off opposite ends of a street and arrest everyone on the block. One evening, two men cut in line for the Moscow Opera. 
the man behind them complained. The two line jumpers denounced him to the Cheka and the man was arrested. Lennon asserted, quote, it was better to arrest a hundred innocent people than to run the risk of letting one enemy of the regime go free. And the Cheka took this as an order. Once the Cheka arrested everyone recently arrived to Moscow with the last name Smirnov. They were apparently looking for one particular Smirnov, but they decided to seize all of them and sort it out later. Smirnov is one of the most common Russian last names. The first Russian concentration camps were organized in the terror. Mutinies were put down, strikers were shot, and the families of peasant protesters were taken hostage. Prisoners were tortured into denouncing their neighbors, their co-workers, and their families. No one will ever know how many Russians died in the Red Terror, but estimates range from 100,000 to 200,000. At the exact same time, the whites carried out their own terror. In white-occupied territory, military commanders ordered sweeping arrests and executions. Farms were destroyed, villages burned down, mass floggings held in the streets. Jews were particular targets of white-organized pogroms in southern Russia and Ukraine. Again, the campaign wasn't a secret. One of the white generals declared to his troops, quote, The greater the terror, the greater our victories. Just as in the Red Terror, no one will ever know how many people died in the White Terror. Estimates range from 20,000 to as many as 300,000. What was the point of all this? The Bolsheviks claimed they were crushing the enemies of the revolution. They claimed their movement was under attack from all sides. They pointed to an assassination attempt on Lenin in late August 1918 as proof. The whites, meanwhile, claimed they were crushing the Bolsheviks. Except uh, that's nonsense. The point really was to frighten the people into absolute submission. Fear is a powerful inhibitor. Fear of the imperial secret police had kept resistance to the Tsar underground, but that fear had been ultimately inadequate. The revolution happened anyway. So to stop the next revolution, both the Reds and the Whites believed they had to inspire a level of fear vaster, deeper, and more bone-chilling than the Tsar's. Only terror could bring them security. Except... Okay, that's also nonsense. Yes, it's a reason, but it's an inadequate one. Torturing millions and murdering hundreds of thousands isn't a rational act, and to give it a rational explanation denies its fundamentally cracked logic. They wanted to hurt people. George Orwell, one of the 20th century's most clear-eyed observers of terror, said, quote, The object of persecution is persecution. The object of torture is torture. The object of power is power. The Romanovs were as much victims of the terror as all of the men named Smirnov. In the words of one historian, the murder of the family was, quote, a statement that from now on individuals would count for nothing in the Civil War. Trotsky once said, we must put an end once and for all to the Papist Quaker babble about the sanctity of human life. 
We feel for the Romanovs because we can see them as real people. We know what books Olga liked to read, what piano pieces Tatiana liked to play. We know Maria kissed a guard and Anastasia named her Spaniel Jimmy. We know Alexei always wanted a bicycle. The other half a million Russians killed in the terror were also individuals, but we don't have their letters or photos of them in sun hats, but their lives were taken just as brutally and for just as little reason. Well, I want to curl up in a ball under my desk right now. Sorry, team. This is hard going. Did you know in a few weeks we're going to talk about baseball? Nobody dies. Okay, so after the Czechoslovak Legion conquered Yekaterinburg, they went right on defeating the Red Army. In August, they seized the city of Kazan, about 500 miles west of Yekaterinburg. They were surprised to discover in the city about half of the Russian imperial gold reserves worth more than $300 million. They quickly set that discovery aside for a rainy day. The Legion was triumphant, but by now it was badly stretched. Yes, it controlled a swath of land wider than the continental United States, but only a narrow strip of that land. Legionnaires had been fighting continuously for months without reserves and with only the supplies they could buy or seize from the locals. And it's not like there had been a lot of time for agriculture recently. And winter was coming on fast. Furthermore, this wasn't where the Legion wanted to be. Everyone else seemed to have forgotten, but the whole point of this exercise was for the Legion to get to France and fight the Germans. The Bolsheviks weren't their enemy. The Central Powers were. The Legion had only agreed to fight the Reds with the promise of Allied support, but Allied support had failed to arrive. In fact, several thousand British, American, and Japanese soldiers had recently landed at Archangel and Vladivostok. I'm going to talk more about the Allied intervention in Russia later this week in a bonus episode. It's fascinating and a mostly forgotten interlude, but those troops stayed pretty close to the ports and there simply weren't enough of them to make a difference. Meanwhile, the Bolsheviks were getting their act together. After months of steady defeat, the Red Army had begun to push back. Kazan was the farthest point west reached by the Legion. By early fall, the Legionnaires were retreating into Siberia. The Whites weren't much help. The drawbacks of an army where the only dedicated fighters are senior officers were becoming clear. The Whites had only one strategy for recruiting foot soldiers. March into a village, round up all of the able-bodied men, and march them away at rifle point. Naturally, these men deserted the first chance they got. Of every five peasants forcibly conscripted, four would desert. Things looked bad, and then in November 1918, they got both incredibly better and incredibly worse. The central powers collapsed. The Austria-Hungarian Empire disintegrated. Germany signed the armistice on the 11th. Just three days later, the new Czechoslovak National Assembly met for the first time. This was amazing news. The Czechs and Slovaks had won their freedom. The war was over. But it was also terrible news. The Legion was stuck fighting in a war it never cared about for allies who had proved unreliable. What exactly was the point of whatever it was they were doing in Siberia? 
The winter of 1918-1919 was a season of stalemate and frustration for the Legion and of hunger and terror among the Russian people. In the middle of everything else, the Spanish flu epidemic swept through the country. But since it was accompanied by cholera, typhus, starvation, and state-sponsored torture, no one paid much attention. The Czechs and the Slovaks could be forgiven for thinking everyone had forgotten about them. News trickled in from the West. The Allies held the peace conference. Germany signed the Treaty of Versailles. The new Czechoslovakia fought for territory. It wasn't until September 22, 1919, while Wilson was on his cross-country tour promoting the League of Nations, that the United States arranged for a $12 million loan to pay for the evacuation of the Legion and ordered ships to sail to Vladivostok and pick them up. Several thousand Czechs and Slovaks had made it to the edge of the Pacific, but several thousand more were still hundreds of miles away. The Red Army was steadily moving in from the west. The Whites and the Legion found themselves competing for the same strip of railway that would carry them out of danger into the east. The former allies soon turned into enemies. The Whites threatened to block the Legion's retreat. The Whites had forgotten who they were dealing with. In January 1920, the Czechs seized the White General and offered a deal to the Bolsheviks. They would exchange the General and the Imperial Gold Reserves for safe passage to Vladivostok. Remember the Imperial Gold Reserves that the Legion had captured in August 1918 way back in Kazan? Yeah, those imperial gold reserves. They had spent some of the money, but mostly the Czechs and Slovaks had hauled it around thinking it might someday prove useful. Enough was left to satisfy the Bolsheviks, who might have been communists, but were very fond of hard currency. Over the years, the Czechs and Slovaks had been criticized for cutting a deal with the Bolsheviks and for handing over the white general, who was promptly executed. I don't know. Strange times make for strange bedfellows. After all, the Allies had practically abandoned them. They just wanted to go home. The last unit of the Legion finally reached Vladivostok in May 1920. It took another five months for all of them to be evacuated from Russia. The Czechoslovak Legion finally arrived home almost two years after the signing of the armistice and the creation of the new Republic of Czechoslovakia. Now, I'm going to circle back one more time and tell you about the establishment of that republic. I have perhaps given the impression that the founding of Czechoslovakia was a relatively painless process. It was not. The actual handover of power from the ruins of Austria-Hungary was, in fact, pretty low-key. Austrian bureaucrats turned over documents to new Czechoslovak bureaucrats. The photo of the emperor was removed from the wall, and the new Czechoslovak flag was raised, and that was that. Where things got ugly were on the borders, and in regions where history and ethnicity were so confused, it was difficult to say who exactly had the stronger claim to the land. Take, for example, Upper Silesia. This area was home to rich coal mines and numerous iron and steel mills. It had changed hands many times over the previous thousand years, with control flipping between Poles, Czechs, and Germans. In 1919, all three countries tried to claim the region. Czechoslovakia went to war with Poland for one disputed Silesian province, and the Poles fought Germany for the rest. 
The whole matter was eventually handed over to the Paris Peace Conference, which divided the region among the three countries and managed to satisfy none of them. The town of Teschen on the Czech-Polish border was split down the middle. One American observer described the geographic absurdity that was the result, quote, The larger eastern region goes to the Poles, but the western region with the railway station goes to the Czechs. The electric light farm goes to one state, but the gas works to the other, and I do not recall what was to become of the municipal waterworks. Tension also simmered over the Sudetenland, a cluster of provinces on the western edge of traditionally Czech territory. More than 90% of residents of the Sudetenland were ethnically German, and when the Austria-Hungarian Empire collapsed, these provinces declared their intention of becoming part of Germany. They cited the principle of self-determination in Wilson's 14 points and seemed confident in their cause. The Czechs, however, had no intention of losing the provinces. They moved their troops into the region and argued their case at the Paris Peace Conference. While they waited for a decision from Paris, ethnic Germans held a series of demonstrations protesting what they considered the Czech occupation of the Sudetenland. Things grew particularly tense in the town of Kadan, where the local German governor ordered civil servants not to cooperate with the Czech administration and, in a move that was both silly and shocking, ordered that no beer could be sold to the Czech soldiers. On March 4, 1919, about 9,000 German protesters, many of them students, raised a German flag in the town square and sang German nationalist songs. Czech soldiers tried to break up the demonstration. A German spat on a Czech guard. The Czechs thought they heard a shot, and suddenly the Czech army was firing into the crowd with machine guns. It was a terrifying moment that left 22 dead and 90 wounded. This incident became known as the Kadan Massacre. It made no difference to the politicians at the peace conference. The Allies were inclined to give the Czechs and Slovaks whatever they wanted. No other nation had worked so hard to earn the goodwill and gratitude of the Allies. In fact, at that very moment, the Czechoslovak Legion was battling its way across the Siberian steppes without any Allied help whatsoever. It would have been really rude to refuse. So the Allies made a grand statement about the importance of the unity of Czech lands and gave the Sudetenland to Czechoslovakia. The deaths at Kadan weren't an isolated incident. Central and Eastern Europe was as convulsed by civil war and terror as Russia. Fighting stretched all the way from Estonia to Bulgaria. There was a red terror in Finland and a white terror in Bulgaria. Hungary endured both a red terror and a white terror, along with invasions by Romania, Czechoslovakia, and Yugoslavia, plus two revolutions and a civil war. National self-determination had seemed like such a reasonable thing when Wilson included it in the 14 points. But the situation on the ground was far more complex than Wilson or any of the other allies appreciated. They had never even heard of many of the ethnic groups fighting for recognition in Central Europe, and most border regions were as difficult to divide as Upper Silesia. Wilson had been hopelessly naive. But given the opportunity to secure a new homeland, the new nations inevitably fought tooth and claw for what they considered theirs. The Allies found the side of formally subjected nations fighting one another unseemly. Couldn't they all just get along? 
In fact, bloodshed was so pervasive in the immediate aftermath of the war that some historians have considered it as a phenomenon that deserves explanation. In his 1990 book, Fallen Soldiers, historian George L. Moss proposed the brutalization hypothesis. This theory holds that the wartime experiences of soldiers in the trenches lessened social resistance toward violence to the point that brutality became ordinary, banal. The war made violence socially acceptable. The consequence was widespread violence in the immediate aftermath of the war, as well as a rise in violent language among politicians and a turn toward militaristic ideologies such as fascism and communism. There's something compelling about the idea that a war as bloody as World War I could somehow reset the baseline of violence for an entire society. However, the theory has failed to overcome some serious challenges. For example, if the theory is true, you would expect French and British soldiers to be just as desensitized to violence as the Germans, Austrian, Russians, etc. Yet France and Britain had no outbreaks of serious violence in 1919. Yes, there were strikes and demonstrations, but nothing like civil war or red terror. In fact, most soldiers who returned from World War I, including those in Eastern and Central Europe, became neither Bolsheviks nor fascists, but rather rejoined peaceful civilian life. The brutalization theory is too neat and tidy an explanation for post-World War I violence. The situation is more complicated, a tangled knot of nationalist ambitions, ethnic animosities, class resentments, historic injustices, and deliberate decisions by evil people who wanted to, how did Trotsky put it, to quote, put an end once and for all to the babble about the sanctity of human life. Nevertheless, the violence had lasting consequences and in many places created cycles of retribution that lasted decades. For example, at Kadan, German nationalists carefully cultivated resentment at the Czechs and turned the victims of the Kadan massacre into martyrs, known as the March Fallen. They were commemorated every year in ceremonies both in Kadan and across Germany. In the 1930s, Adolf Hitler adopted the cause of the Sudetenland and the martyrs of Kadan. In 1938, the Allies tried to placate Hitler by handing Germany the Sudetenland. He promptly invaded the entire country of Czechoslovakia. On the 20th anniversary of the Kadan massacre, the SS held a nighttime march complete with torches in honor of the March Fallen. Through 1919 and into the early 1920s, the armies gradually withdrew, the borders were settled, the truces were signed. It took until about 1922 for Eastern Europe and Russia to finally achieve peace. What did the region look like when it was all over? Well, new nations had been established in Finland, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, Poland, Czechoslovakia, and Yugoslavia. Austria and Hungary became separate states. Nationalism proved an unsteady foundation for most of these countries. Czechoslovakia was one of the most successful at establishing a stable government. Tomas Masaryk was elected the country's first president, and he oversaw the creation of a democratically elected republic that survived until the German invasion in 1938. 
However, the country struggled to protect the rights of its sizable number of ethnic minorities. Along with communities of Ruthenes and Magyars, 23% of the population was German. There were more Germans in Czechoslovakia than Slovaks. As for the Slovaks, they had been promised autonomy and equal rights. They were granted neither. That's the problem with nationalism. When you're acting on the basis of us against them, what do you do with them? Even the most well-meaning nationalists, and I believe Tomas Masaryk was genuinely well-meaning, could not seem to avoid favoring one ethnicity over another. It is only a short step from Germany for the Germans or Hungary for the Hungarians to Germany only for the Germans or Hungary only for the Hungarians. Then you're well on your way to racial purity and ethnic cleansing. Meanwhile, in Russia, the Reds had most of the country under control by 1922, although resistance in the Far East wasn't completely stamped out until June 1923. The Bolsheviks had also regained control of most of the territory lost in the Brest-Litovsk Treaty, as well as several other border countries, including Armenia and Georgia. They marked their success of consolidating their territory by giving their country a new name, the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics. The term Bolshevik fell out of usage in favor of the more general communist, especially after Lenin's death and Stalin's rise in 1924. By the mid-20s, the USSR was recognizable as the nation that would go on to fight the Cold War. It's difficult to appreciate the scale of the suffering in Central and Eastern Europe and Russia. Here is just one bit of demographic insight into that trauma. Between 1917 and 1922, the population of Russia declined by 10 million people, from 142 million to 132 million. That includes those who immigrated or were expelled, those who died in the revolution, those murdered in the red and white terrors, those who died of disease, including the Spanish flu, and those who died of hunger. That's a decline of about 7% of the population. One more demographic detail. By 1922, there were an estimated 7 million homeless children in Russian cities. Either orphaned or abandoned, they were children of the revolution, begging for food, selling their bodies, fighting for survival, and dying in the streets. I want to finish up by talking about power. One of the most lasting consequences of the Russian Revolution was that it introduced a new model of power for governments. Remember the quote from Orwell that I read earlier? I only gave you part of it before. Here's the whole thing. Quote, Power is not a means, it is an end. One does not establish a dictatorship in order to safeguard a revolution. One makes the revolution in order to establish the dictatorship. The object of persecution is persecution. The object of torture is torture. The object of power is power. End quote. The Bolsheviks never lost sight of their main goal, power. The Reds were monsters, but they were organized and disciplined monsters with a clear sense of mission. I don't want to give you the idea that the Bolsheviks were particularly efficient or effective. Their system was astoundingly corrupt and ridiculously wasteful. But, but, its people were too afraid to revolt. In that one arena, the Bolsheviks were far more competent than Nicholas. 
This was a new thing under the sun, a ruthless, laser-focused dictatorship that made no claims about divine right and dismissed the sanctity of human life as so much babble. As far as I can recall, no previous government matched the Bolsheviks in this regard. The closest thing I can come up with is the terror in revolutionary France, which didn't last nearly as long. If you have another or better comparison that dates to before 1919, I'd love to hear it. We can talk about it on the Facebook page. I will discuss in a few weeks the Red Scare in the United States and how millions were terrified that communists were about to leap out and conquer the West. Those fears were ridiculous and exaggerated, but I understand where they were coming from. The Bolsheviks were new, and they were terrifying. I said at the start that we don't know the details of the lives of the vast majority of victims of the Russian Revolution or the Red Terror. That's true, but research in the archives of the Cheka has revealed a few glimpses of the real people that make up the statistics. For example, Volodya Moshkin was a 27-year-old engineer. I, I hope I'm not totally butchering his name. His wife, Elena, wrote to the Cheka in November 1918, pleading for his release. She explained that he had been arrested as a, quote, bourgeois hostage, unquote, because it was alleged he was a member of the Union of House Owners. He was not, in fact, a member of the Union of House Owners. Elena begged to take her husband's place in jail. They had two small children, and their only income was Volodya's salary. The local Cheka boss had offered to release him in exchange for 5,000 rubles and admitted they had no evidence against him. We don't know what happened to Volodya Moshkin. The letter was marked into the archive and was found there decades later. When you see photos of the Romanov daughters in their white dresses and wide sun hats smiling into the camera, Remember Volodya Moshkin, who had two daughters of his own. Thanks so much for listening to The Year That Was. I hope you check back next week. We're going to have one last episode that touches on the Russian Revolution and look at the Allied intervention in Vladivostok and Archangel. We touched on it briefly this week, but the details are so amazing. I want to go into more detail. Check out the website at www.theyearthatwaspodcast.com. There are lots of maps this time because this episode is really helped by maps as well as photos. You can follow me on Twitter and visit the Facebook page and join the Facebook group where you can ask questions and share thoughts with other listeners. Make sure you subscribe so you never miss an episode. And if you are so inclined, leave a rating or review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or any of the other big podcast apps. Thanks again for listening. I'm Elizabeth Lunday, and this is the year that was 1919.